Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. We are thrilled to be a part of your spiritual journey and look forward to helping you discover God's plan for your life. To find more messages like this, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast feeds. To stay connected with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the handle CCGF01 and check out our website, ccgf.org, for all of this information and more. Now, here is this week's message, Grace and Peace to You. So about five or six years ago, um, the, the church where Lisa and I were worshiping was having a capital campaign. We were getting to do some work on our building and, and offer some new opportunities for the community. And, and with that came a call, of course, to contribute. Now, we were already tithing. I said to you, just matter of factly, we were tithing to the church, but, but we felt like we needed to give up and above that to contribute to this, this campaign that was going on in the church. So Lisa and I sat down, we looked at our, our finances, and, and we made a pledge for, for two years that we were going to give up and above. Now, we knew this meant there was going to be some sacrifice. This would mean less trips out to a restaurant. You know, there's some other things we were going to have to sacrifice. We prepared for all that, and we were in. We, we, we put our pledge in. Well, of course, once the pledge began and, and we started to contribute to it, the unexpected took place. I had this old truck I was driving around, and the old truck gave out. And so I was in the market suddenly for a new car. So I sat down, and I thought, okay, I can figure this out. And I did some research, and, and I found the car that I like. I showed Lisa my dream car. I think we have a picture of it here. Showed her my dream car, and I said, here it is. What do you think? And she quickly came to me and she said, well, let me show you your reality car. And she showed me my reality car. Now, the disparity wasn't quite that great, but you get the gist, right? I had a certain, like, thing that I wanted. And she was like, no, this is actually what, we, what you can get. This is what we can afford. And it felt a little bit like that. And all of this created in me sort of a, a, a budget disappointment, right? I had this tension. I mean, here on one hand, you know, I, I'm like anyone else. I, I want to have some nice things, but, but we had committed as a family that Lisa was going to stay home with our girls and, and educate them. We, we've been homeschoolers. And so we, we decided we were going to be a single income family. We also, though, are like anyone else, and, and we've got wants. Wants, I mean, come on, I know wants and needs. This was a want. I wanted this, I needed this car. I needed this car. And then finally, you know, we want to be generous too, just like anyone else. We want to contribute to things like the capital campaign. But in the midst of all this, I found myself frustrated. In fact, I can remember exactly where I was outside of our house when I went outside after I had this conversation about, with Lisa and we looked at our budget. I was so frustrated. Because I felt like, look, if I wasn't given to the church, I could easily afford a nice new car. I felt that in the moment. I had kind of a quandary of satisfaction, you could say. And I think this happens for a lot of us. If you're like me, you've got some desires. I'll outline three desires that we tend to have. The first desire is this. We desire to have some nice things so we can enjoy them. Are you like that? whether it's a trip or a car or, or something around your house or some kind of gadget. You, you, we want some nice things that we can enjoy. Secondly, I want to take care of my family. I'm sure you're like this as well. You want to take care of your loved ones. 
So I've got the desire for some nice things I can enjoy. I've got the desire to take care of my family. And I do have a desire to be generous and help other people. I mean, legitimately, those three desires live within me. But whenever giving comes up, there's immediately a tension that rises to the surface. And here's why. The problem is there's a limited pool of resources, my income. And so these three desires create a tension because of that limited source of income, just my income. And all of a sudden, I have to make some choices. And here's how the choices tend to go. I tend to gravitate towards number one and two. Give myself some nice things to enjoy. Take care of my family. And the one that tends to drop, the one that I'll sacrifice, is number three. And really embedded in this whole equation is this. The question of how and where do I find my satisfaction? What is the source ultimately of me being a person who is satisfied? You feel that tension? I think it's pretty real. And you know, we say things like this. We say things like, well, hey, if I just had more money, I would give more. I mean, you, with, I think we've all set off. Oh, I hit the Powerball. First thing I'd do, of course, is write a check to the church. I'd give the church a million bucks if I hit the Powerball. You know, the truth of the matter is, if we really thought about it, we do have more. I mean, you've got raises, you've received bonuses, and yet we don't give more. At least a lot of us don't. We struggle with this. In fact, I'd say this, you've heard this old adage, the greatest predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So in other words, whether you're making $5,000 a year or you're making $500,000 a year, what you're giving right now, the way you're living, the degree of generosity that's present in your life is most likely what will be present when you have more money. I mean, do you feel that? Where do we get our satisfaction from? How do we take on this tension of wanting to have nice things, wanting to take care of our families, and also wanting to be generous? And how do we live up to the generosity thing? I believe that Jesus gives us a brand new perspective on this whole thing. In the passage we're going to look at today, he gives us a whole new perspective on the whole discussion that we're having about what's it mean to be satisfied and what's it mean to be generous and so why don't we go there right now? Would you go to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, chapter 12? If you've got your Bible, you can open it up. If you have a, a smartphone or an iPad with you, go for it online. We're so glad with you. Open that Bible up. I'll tell you too, this, this passage, this little story, appears not only in the gospel of Mark, it also appears in the gospel of Luke, chapter 21. So there's some importance to this. It's almost verbatim the same in both Mark and in Luke, we're going to look at Mark today, chapter 12, and let's just go through this right now, verse by verse. It's relatively short, and then I have three lessons I want to share. I want you to consider, as we consider what it means to be satisfied in this, this paradigm of generosity. Beginning in verse 41 of Mark chapter 12, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many people threw in large amounts. Many rich people threw in large amounts. So let's stop there. Let's talk about the setting for a moment. The setting of this story is the temple. 
Specifically, the second temple, also known as Herod's temple. I think we have a graphic here to show you this. Okay, now it's called Herod's temple. There's a reason why. The second temple was built, constructed uh, after uh, Israeli exile. And then Herod came along and he wanted to make a great name for himself. So he got into a bunch of building projects and he contributed to the refurbishing of the temple. Now, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but it probably looks something like this based on what we know. Okay, and so the temple was constructed. Now, I want to point out something to you in the, the temple. Of course, you have the, the court of the Gentiles, which is outside of the walls. That's the area outside the walls, and the Gentiles could only go there. So unless you were Jewish, you couldn't even go in to the first court, which is called the court of women. Do you see the court of women there? Now you might say, oh, that's nice, the court of women, a place where the ladies can hang out. <laughs> well, not necessarily. You bachelors, cool your jets. It wasn't that kind of court of women. This was a place that essentially men and women could go here, Jewish men and women, but they could only go that far. The women could not go beyond the court of women. They could not go into the inner courts there where the priests would go and where you see the Holy of Holies. And so the, the court of women was a place where there were musicians, there was entertainment, there was dancing. There was even a barbershop there. All sorts of activity in, in the court of women. And you see those four chambers in the corners of the court of, of women? In between those chambers was the treasury. This is where people would come and put their offerings. And, and this treasury had 13 trumpet-shaped chests, big at the top, skinny at the bottom. And people would come in and drop in their offering. Now, the, the crazy thing is when people would drop their offering in, they'd make a big show of it. They make a big to-do about it. In fact, you read Matthew chapter 6. I think I have this down. Make a note of Matthew 6. Go back to this. You can see how the people made a show. Jesus references this. Matthew 6, verse 2. Whenever you give alms, whenever you give an offering or a gift, he says, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you. They have received their reward. See, these people would give a McDonald's gift certificate to the, the homeless guy in the street, and then they would cue their theme music. That's how they did this. And do a little dance and look at me, how great I am. Y your reputation was really big in the culture. And so these people love to, to make a big show of their gifts. And so Jesus brings his disciples here to camp out and watch this whole thing happen. They're in the court of women, and they're watching this whole gift-giving, this whole offering-giving thing happening. Jesus is the ultimate rabbi, and he is setting up here a teaching experience. He ensures a good vantage point so he can teach his disciples a lesson about giving, about generosity. You know, I, I took a cue from Jesus, and we've actually instructed the, the ushers today to sit and watch all of you as you drop your offering in the baskets on the way in and the way out today. So just know we'll be paying attention to you there. You're like, what? <laughs> Is he serious? No, we wouldn't do that. Because that feels intrusive, doesn't it? It feels intrusive to have people watching you as you give your gift. But the reality is this. The Lord does watch our, our generosity. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're giving. Isn't that incredible? And so we have to be mindful of that. I think we see that here. Let's keep going in the text. So Jesus is set up. He's got the lesson ready to be taught. And it says this in verse 42. 
A poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. So, you know, in this time, widows, and to be a widow, was a social and a financial catastrophe. It was an awful thing to happen to a person. This was a patriarchal society. And so women didn't have much, much upward mobility. If you lost your spouse as a woman, then you lost your stream of income. And so it'd be really easy to pick out who the widows were. In fact, they may have dressed in a certain way to, to maybe alert people to help them. Plus, they were poor, so they just couldn't afford nice clothing. You would know who the widows were amongst you. Now, now Jesus talks about this widow, that she gave some coins. We typically uh, know of these coins as the widow's mite. Have you ever heard that? The widow's mite. Now, that word mite is actually an English word. We get that word mite from the King James Version of the Bible. And these times, they weren't called mites. The, the word was actually lepton. These were coins known as lepton. And these were the smallest, least valuable coins in Judea. Small, small coins, not worth much at all. In fact, they were worth um, the equivalent of one denarius. And a denarius was about the average wage of, of a worker's pay for one day. So these little two coins are worth one sixty-fourth, I'm sorry, one sixty-fourth of a denarius, that one day's wage. This woman put in basically a few minutes worth of, of work income into the offering. That's all she put in. A few cents is all it was worth. But yet we hear Jesus say this in verse 43, calling his disciples to him. Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in the treasury than all the others. Jesus has an entirely different perspective in all this. I think that's so interesting. Jesus sees what she's given, these two little coins, insignificant, worth just a portion of one day's wage. And he says, look, she's given more than everyone. Now, the disciples had to be just baffled by this. We've heard these words before. They're a little more familiar to us. But to the original audience, can you imagine how confused they were? What's he talking about? Well, here's the thing that Jesus is talking about. He has a different perspective on matters. This is important for us. You know, you've got financial decisions to make, don't you? Some of you are considering selling a business. Or maybe you're thinking about retirement. Or maybe you're about to make some financial investment. And my sense, if you're anything like me, of what even Christians are like is this. We tend to not invite God into our financial decision making. We tend to, we tend to turn to the consultants, right? The financial consultants. Nothing wrong with financial consultants. We tend to, to, to turn to the Wall Street Journal. We tend to, to find the stock reports. But do we turn to the Lord and say, God, what's your perspective? What would you have me, God, do with my money? I'm considering retirement. I'm considering selling my business. Lord, Lord I, I'm, I'm considering investing my money in a certain way. Maybe as we approach this in-gathering season, the lesson for us here is, would you ask God and say, God, what would you have me and my family give during this next year? What would you have us give? Let's invite the Lord and his perspective, which is a different perspective, into our financial matters. Finishing this little story, 
Verse 44. Jesus says, he explains his, his perspective by saying, they, the rich people, all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So Jesus points out, he says, look, they gave out of their wealth, she gave out of her poverty. And what he is placing an emphasis on in this is proportional giving. He's talking about proportional giving here. And he's saying there is an importance about that. He wasn't so much impressed by the big amount. He was impressed by the proportion. And he says, ultimately, she gave more. That's, that's the perspective of God on this matter. That as they watch this whole thing play out in front of them, and they watch the pomp and circumstance, that the one who gave just a few cents actually gave more. Proportion matters. So let's look at the three lessons I have as we've looked at this text. You've got three things I want to run by you, okay? Consider these as lessons from this, this, this text that we've read. The first lesson is this. Jesus introduces a paradigm shift in how giving would be forever evaluated. We would never evaluate giving in the church as Christians, as believers, the same again because of what Jesus introduces here in the midst of the giving paradigm. You know, God is moved by percentages, not by amounts. We see that clearly. He's, he's impressed by percentages, not amounts. Jesus determined that the tiny amount that the widow gave was greater was more than the large amounts of the rich. He said she has given more. More in the sight of the one who looks not at the amount, but the ability of the one who is given. She gave more in the eyes of the one who sees not just the quantity that's contributed, but the heart of the contributor. He says she gave more. Let me break it down to you like this. The rich gave large amounts, but a small percentage. The poor widow gave a small amount, but a huge, a large percentage. Studies show, studies show that the people with lots of money actually give overall a much smaller percentage of their dollars. And that's something. And by the way, we've talked about this before, but let's level set on this. We're talking about Americans, Westerners. We have some of the greatest wealth, even the middle class among us here, which many of us are middle class. We have greater wealth than any other people who have lived in the history of the world. We're a wealthy nation overall. Yes, they're poor among us, and we're going to help feed them. But overall, we're a wealthy people. And we, as a people, give a much smaller percentage of our dollars. Um, a few years back, I went on a mission trip to Kenya. And we worshipped in, in an outreaching church of, of Kenya um, on, a, on a given morning. And, and this was a very memorable service. It was long. We showed up early in the morning, and we were there till mid-afternoon. It was wonderful. I mean, great praise and worship. It was a really rich time together. And... Um, you know, it was one of these things where there were several, I think there were like three services, but people showed up for the first service and they just stayed for all the services. No one left. And in the midst of these three services that stretched for about six hours, there were about four or five different offerings. I couldn't believe it. I mean, this multiple times in each service, 
the pastor would come up and say, okay, there's another need I want to tell you about. And they'd pass the plates around. They'd pass the baskets around. I just couldn't believe that he was doing it. I was like, man, this guy is really, he is really wringing out the cloth here. <laughs> he is asking for money over and over again. Well, finally, we get to the end of the services. And after all these offerings have been taken up, the minister says, okay, we've got some Americans, as you know, among us. And they've come here to serve our children and, and to serve our church. I'd like for us to bless them with an offering. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my, this is going to be embarrassing. You know, they, they've given everything they've had already. And, and, and are they really going to give? These, these poor, relatively poor, relative to us, poor Kenyans, are they really going to give to those wealthy Americans standing in front of them who, who are wealthy just by virtue of the fact that we could travel, we could fly to Kenya to spend 10 days? And so the pastor calls us forward, all of us, the whole team, 12 of us, and says, stand here and please receive the offering. And they play a song. Well, as the song begins, people start to come forward. They're putting money in our hands. And, and I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. Every, every single person, every single person, among about 150 of them, came forward and put an offering in our hand, even the children. Who does that? Why would someone do that? Why would the widow give what she had to the Lord? Why would she give such a huge amount? Why would she give everything that she had? Well, listen, there's something that, that a person learns through poverty that's very hard to learn when you're wealthy, and that is deep dependence on God, which leads me really to the second lesson, okay? This deep dependence on God, this idea. Our giving to God is always proportional to our trust in God. That's the second lesson. Our giving to God is always proportional to our trust in God. Of all the possible ways to lose sight of God, I would suggest that money is one of the, the greatest ways that we can lose sight of God. Here's the thing. Like God, money has power. God is infinitely more powerful. But I think you'd agree that the money has a certain amount of power to it, doesn't it? And so what happens? The tendency is, is we have money and we have more of it we begin to replace our trust in God with trust in money. Money's deceptive like that. The power of money, the, 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 the allure of money is very deceptive in that way. That's why Jesus in, in Luke 12 says this. There's a little parable. I'm going to read through it quickly. He says this about depending on God. He says this about being tripped by the power of money, of wealth. The parable says this, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, bumper crop, big year. He thought to himself, this farmer, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, ah, I know what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. You're good to go. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, this is what the parable says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This was how it will be, Jesus says, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. You see, the richer you get, the more intentional you have to be to depend on God more than money. Do you see it? The, the richer you get, the more wealth you have. The more that you say, I've got to be intentional 
to depend on God and not on money. The widow gave, I love this, the widow gave without knowing where her next meal was going to come from, where her next paycheck was going to come from, how she was going to fend for herself. She gave everything. She didn't have some safety net. That's what we tend to do. We make sure that the spreadsheet lines up. She didn't make sure the spreadsheet lined up. She gave everything she had. And so there's a part of the giving process that requires this irrational, trusting God, this dependence on God. You know, we, we say we give to God first. The Jews, they, they would come to the temple, to the court of women, and give on the Sabbath. Christians, we give on Sunday. That's the first day of the week, right? The reason we do that, the reason the Jews do that, it requires us to depend on God for the balance. We give to him first. And then we say, okay, God, I'm trusting you to provide for my needs beyond this. I trust you with the outcome. I trust you with the balance. I trust you with the rest. You know, that, I told you the story about that, that campaign, the capital campaign at the church that Lisa and I gave to, and then the car thing. The amazing thing is, Lisa and I were just talking about this last week. The amazing thing about that story is that actually we saw that our income increased that year. I didn't get a raise from my employer, from the church. Our income somehow was, was, was upped. There were some other opportunities, little things, little jobs that Lisa had got to do and little opportunities I had. It wasn't crazy, crazy amount, but we saw actually that we made more that year when we were giving up and above our tithe to the church. Not only that, I am, since that time, the proud owner of a 2008 Honda CRV with 200,000 plus miles on it. <laughs> Look how blessed I am. Yeah, I mean, sure, it sounds like it's going to attack you when it, when it kicks in and makes this really loud noise, but man, I'm satisfied. And that's the truth of the matter. The truth is, I am strangely satisfied somehow, despite the fact that I got a crummy car. Here's our third lesson. The third lesson is this. Priority and percentage giving is the most intentional way we practically depend on God more than money. This is really important <laughs> for, for, for us who, who, who live in America, who have this relative wealth we're speaking of. You got to have a mechanism. You got to have a way to keep yourself in check, to not trust in money more than you trust in God. And, and I'm suggesting to you that priority and percentage giving is, is the most intentional way that you can fight this battle of depending more on God than on money. And there's someone here who's going to pull me aside after the service and you're going to say, look, Pastor Craig, where in the Bible? Show me in the Bible, in the New Testament, where it says anything about giving 10%, but it says anything about tithing. And you're right. You're right. The New Testament does not speak to that. There are actually two percentages, only two percentages that we read about in the Bible. One is 10%. You see that in the Old Testament, the 10th, okay? The other is everything. So tell you what, you take your choice. You take your pick. 10% are everything. That's what the Bible subscribes. But here, here's the amazing thing about it. You know, there's a, there's a Barna study that shows that the Christians, Christians, only 10 to 12% of us tithe to our churches. Only 10 to 12% of Christians tithe. 
And so somehow, we're not quite there yet, are we? Giving ultimately boils down to a step of faith. Best way to do it, I believe, is priority and percentage giving. So there's a story um, told by a man named Russell Conwell. Conwell was a pastor. If you've heard of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in the Boston area, he's that guy. It's, this is that Conwell. And Conwell was a pastor. He tells a story um, about a little girl. There was a little girl, and her name was Hattie Mae Wyatt. This is in the late 1800s. And, and Hattie Mae Wyatt was this little sweet girl who showed up at Sunday school. Now, this church where Conwell was the minister had a really thriving Sunday school ministry. So much so that they were out of room. And so people would show up to Sunday school, little kids, and they would, they would send them away, which is, I can't imagine, but they would send them away because they were so packed out. Well, little Hattie Mae got turned away one Sunday, and she was crushed by it. And so she, she said, you know, she, she was really crushed by this. The pastor told her, sweetie, don't worry. You can just imagine, little pastor, don't worry, sweetie. Someday we're going to build a bigger building, and then you can come to Sunday school every week, right? Well, Hattie Mae never got to see that day come. Because she got sick and she died as a little girl. Conwell was asked to preside over the funeral service. And during the funeral, Hattie's mother came to him and said, this is Hattie's purse. She was saving her money to help build a new Sunday school building. I want to give this to you. And so after the service was over, the pastor, this is a true story. The pastor opens this up and he finds 57 cents. The little Hattie Mae had signed up, had saved up. So Conwell was moved by this. And he started the, the Hattie Samaritan Fund. And the Hattie Samaritan Fund was this fund that they were going to use to build a new Sunday school building. They were going to take her offering. They were going to take her 57 cents of seed money and build that up to build a Sunday school wing where every kid could come to, to church, right, and have that experience. And so eventually they got enough money together as a church. And they bought a piece of property. They, they bought a house on that property. And eventually, after they began their Sunday school classes and they continued to grow, the very first class of Temple College, which is now Temple University, grew out of that house that the money the little Hattie Mae gave to the church provided. Isn't that incredible? Her offering not only provided a place for Sunday school, provided the seeds for a university that would educate thousands upon thousands of people over the next hundred years. What an incredible thing. You know, the thing that I take away from that story is this. Never underestimate what consistent giving, what your generosity, what your tithe can do. Never underestimate that. I want to take you back to the first week. The first week of this series, Satisfied, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want to point out to you verse 7 in this, okay? I want to read this to you. You can go there again with me. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, he says, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. This is a gifted people. You got all these gifts. You got all these things going for you, he says. Also see that you excel in the grace of giving. Somebody's out there saying, whether it's online or with us here in the room, you're saying, why are you beating the drum? Why are you getting into my personal finances? 
You don't like the way that feels. It creates a tension in you. Like I said, it creates a tension in me when I give this. Listen, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then, then I'm not expecting you to, to hear this necessarily or even obey this. But if you are a Christian, I want to say this to you. I want to say this to you as a brother in Christ. Charitable giving is an undeniable expectation of following Jesus. It just is, plain and simple. You search the scriptures for yourself. It's an undeniable expectation of someone who follows Jesus. You know, we'll sing a song. We sing the song here in church. We sing, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Don't you love that song? Jesus paid it all. And what do we say? All to him I owe. We'll raise our hands and we'll sing that. But when it comes to giving, we all want to shrink up. We all say, no, 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 no. I, I got my stuff over here I need. I, I got needs. I got things I want to take care of. I got to take care of my family. Well, if we truly owe it all to him, if Jesus truly paid it all, and we owe it all to him, but that absolutely includes Christians, our generosity. My hope is, is that we will be a church that's known for being generous. generous. And I think that tension we speak of, of, of the things that you want to have, the nice stuff you want to have to enjoy, and, and the taking care of your family and being generous, I believe that we can live in that tension and we can find, when we live in that tension, that satisfaction will come from the Lord. In fact, I think it's why Jesus told this story. I think it's why he brought them around and gave them this lesson in the court of women so that he could show that there is, there is a satisfaction that comes from giving. There is a, a satisfaction that comes from trusting God. So I'll give you some very practical takeaways. Okay, are you a giver? If you're a giver to this church, first of all, thank you. Look, we're, we're able to do things like have those food trucks come in. We're able to minister to children. Jeremiah, who's leading us in worship this morning, he's able to have a youth ministry. We're able to have a, a place to worship and gather together. Thank you for your giving. It means a lot. I would also ask you, if you're a giver, to examine this. Are you as consistent with your giving as you think you are? We're, we're coming up and you gathering. This is a great time for you to sit down and say, okay, you know, I, I think I've been consistent. Are you as consistent? Examine that. If you're someone in the church who's not been a consistent giver, well, then let me challenge you to pick a percentage. Pick a percentage and demonstrate your faith in God by giving to him first. This isn't about me. This is about you and your relationship with God. It's about you living in that tension and finding true satisfaction. If you're someone who's never given, and we were all there one day, I was there. If you've never given, then would you take a 90-day challenge and say, okay, I'm going to give. I'm going to give to the church. Maybe you're going to give to Urban Impact. Maybe you're going to give to Choices Pregnancy Center. You're going to give some amount to test this principle that there's satisfaction living in the tension of being generous with God first. And yes, then trusting him to provide for not only your wants, but your needs. Would you do that? Would you take up the nine-day challenge? Jesus truly did pay it all. That's why we're so passionate about this. He paid it all, and I believe we truly do owe it all right back to him. And that includes, and maybe should be led in a sense, and reflected by our generosity and giving.
May we be a church that is truly known for being outrageously generous. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus who has indeed paid it all. And Lord, we owe everything to him. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for what he has given to us. And Lord, as we consider this teaching, it's challenging to us because, Lord, we so want to hang on to the things of this world. We want to find satisfaction in the things that we find pleasure in. Yeah, we we do want to, to provide for our families. And we also want to be generous. Help us, Lord, in this struggle to trust you and to find true satisfaction in giving to you first. Oh, Lord, teach us. I pray, Lord, that first and foremost, if there's anyone here today who's curious about this idea that Jesus gave it all, he didn't give 10%, he gave 100%. That if there's anyone here who's interested in that idea, Lord, that they would surrender themselves to you. They'd give themselves to you. Trusting in the blood and the body of Jesus for true life, a life that's abundant, a life that's meant to be given right back to you. Help us, God. We love you. We thank you that you indeed paid it all. Strengthen us to live as people who owe it all to you and give generously in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.